Dr. R.J. Rushduni, RR161DC196, Humanistic Law. From the Easy Chair, Excellent Colloquies on Various Subjects. This is R.J. Rushduni, Easy Chair Number 306, January 17, 1994. Douglas Murray, Otto Scott, Mark Rushduni, and I will now discuss humanistic law. We have a problem in the Western world, and I think uh, Qaddafi called attention to it very, very tellingly, perhaps 15 years ago or 13 years ago, when he warned the Western nations, that they were creating a world catastrophe. He sent them a Christmas message in which he urged them to go back to Jesus Christ. He said, Law <coughs> cannot long endure unless it has a supernatural foundation, a supernatural source. And what the Western world had done by abandoning Jesus Christ was to erode all source of law and morality. And the whole world was being infected by the growing collapse that Western society represented. Of course, he received no response to his uh, Christmas message to the Western states. But the crisis has not gone away because they paid no attention to him. It has indeed gotten much worse. Someone has observed that any civil government is finished when people no longer feel safe on the streets. At that point, the basic function of that government as far as the average person is concerned to keep them secure in their lives and properties is no longer uh, tenable it's no longer being exercised and you have a revolutionary temper unfortunately and the people are ready to turn against the state they turn against it in 101 ways. They show their contempt by it. Its leaders become the subject of contempt and of humor. The laws are broken at will because the state's laws are not comparable to God's. Who respects what a group of politicians have produced? So we have a crisis. Humanistic law very quickly loses its validity because it has behind it only the will of the state. On top of that, it changes so, so that there is no constancy, no principle, no premise that keeps governing it year in and year out. You do not know what the law is going to say. You give up trying to know and... Douglas Murray has pointed out that there are over 
3,000 new laws in California each year. Add as many or more by Congress passed annually. Add to that tens of thousands of bureaucratic regulations which are enforced through bureaucratic courts. And you see how respect for the law has ceased to exist. The law is so extensive that no one can know it nor respect it. With that, Douglas, would you like to carry on? Well, the <clears throat> it's having a lot of effects on our society. It's uh, altering people's behavior. People used to go into cities to shop uh, because there was more selection and, and so forth. Uh, people find themselves uh, now avoiding going to major cities, even though there are discount outlets there and so forth, and even the, the major uh, merchandising outlets uh, are putting in stores out of the city areas. Uh, they're going to where the people are, uh, realizing that people don't want to travel into the city anymore. So you have a decentralization of economic activity. Uh, mail order shopping has become very big simply because people want to avoid the potential for uh, violent crime uh, in the city. And now the latest thing is television shopping. Yes. People who shop by television. So people's behavior is, is uh, our whole society's behavior is, is changed uh, by the uh, the concern for their safety uh, going into the cities. I don't go to San Francisco uh, ever. Uh, I won't even go to Modesto or Stockton, which are towns of maybe 100, 200,000 people because the drive-by shootings, the the random crime has become pervasive. So uh, you simply have to live without the convenience of, of uh, being able to shop at, uh, in major economic centers any longer. This is just one facet of, of uh, how it's affected people's lives. The, the, uh, the confusion uh, caused by humanistic law uh, has become so multi-layered that uh, people are confused about what is legal and what isn't legal. Even police officers now almost have to fly by the seat of their pants. When they go into a situation, one fellow told me, one uh, uh, sheriff's deputy told me recently that uh, he responded to a report of somebody shooting near a residence. Now, the law is you can't shoot within 150 yards of a private residence. Or rather, th I'm sorry, 300 feet, but it was within about 150 feet. So the guy just winged it. I mean, he just told the, the guy who was doing... The guy was, was shooting on his own property doing some target practice, but uh, the noise of the, the uh, target shooting apparently was uh, bothering uh, a neighbor, and... Uh, so he, he told this uh, fellow who was doing the shooting who was legally target practice on his own property, safely doing it safely, that 
that the law was 150 feet. So police officers now have gotten into the habit of, in effect, writing the law to cure the specific situation. They don't bother to go back. Uh, Many of them carry a copy of what they call Deering's uh, copy of the California Penal Code. And uh, before they even get out and go in the house, sometimes they will review a particular section of the law that they've been called to respond to. They don't do that anymore because there's no time. The calls are so fast, and they're, they're going from one place to another as quickly as they can. They have to make it up on the spot, and, and they're just... Even the, the lawyers in court now take advantage of the ignorance of the judge on the law. And I've... and. I've heard attorneys say that when they go into court, they just make it up. And the judge hasn't got time because the pace of the cases are so fast that uh, if it sounds right, they go along with it. I mean, the system is is gotten totally broken down. I mean, it's become absolutely insane. Well, I think the title you chose... I didn't choose it. It was suggested, both titles. Well, Humanistic Law is a marvelous title because it summarizes in two words what's wrong with the law. The law in the Western civilization has always been based on the fact that there is a higher law. Uh If law is limited to man, then anything goes. Uh And that's where we are. Yes. I recall talking to the chief legal counsel for Firestone Rubber when Firestone Rubber was a big independent American company. That's in the 60s, early 60s. And we got, of course, since he's a lawyer, we got onto the law. And uh, he said most people have the opinion that the law is a straight highway with a series of posts on it, that this is right and this is wrong and so forth. But he said that's not true. He said the law is a process. And he said my task as the corporate counsel here is to see the direction that the court is taking and to lead the company into a pattern which fits that direction because down the road a ruling along that line will come along. Well, if you have law that is that fluid, then you reach the point that you're talking about, Doug, where it's now become a regular ocean and nobody really, you can find a precedent for anything and you can find an argument for or against anything. And it seems to me, from what I've been told, from what your experience, Rush, with the uh, Constitution and the courts, where you're not, you're, you or your lawyer are not allowed to bring up the Constitution. That's right. Here we have a Constitution that the courts will not allow you to cite because it carries the case beyond the regulations. And the point in the case, as as you told me, was whether or not the regulation was violated. That's all. Whether the regulation is constitutional or not is beside the point. Well, then, what what do we have? Do we have a, a system of law? 
No, you certainly don't. You have a system of regulations. That's That comes right to the bone. <coughs> I think that's why a lot of people think of the law as not something that protects them, but they think of the law as being their enemy. And if you ever need to use the law for your own benefit, you'll have to face the fact that it's going to cost you dearly. That the law is not available, and the courts are not available for simple justice to someone who has been wronged. You have to pay very dearly for justice, and then it's 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 a coin toss as to whether you're going to get justice, because the courts don't stand for justice; they stand for the regulations. Mm-hmm. I don't know how many of you ever read what you said. Douglas reminded me of it. A novel written oh, around 1960, and I do not recall the author, but the name was Pioneer Go Home. Any of you ever read that? No. It was a classic. Very, very funny. Hmm. Dorothy and I laughed uh, over that. We read it and we reread it. A film was made of the uh, novel, and I believe Elvis Presley played uh, the young man in it, but uh, I never saw the film, so I don't know what its qualities were. The gist of the story was that this uh, southern family... uh, falls afoul of the law when their car breaks down and they decide to be squatters there on the south shore of the Chesapeake, I believe. And the uh, police attempt to oust them and the old man, the grandfather, uh, says, leave it to me. And he's... uh, quotes a regulation or a law uh, on each occasion to the sheriff's men. And he says, why, there's a statute, I don't recall the exact date of it, which said thus and so. And if you tamper with what I'm doing, you're running afoul of the law and you're really liable they'd go back and ask the legal department to research it and sure enough there always was something along those lines and the old grandfather kept saying you've got to understand they've passed so many laws that you can just wing it invent anything pull it out of the air and they're going to find that somebody has passed that kind of law either on the state or the federal level and that's the story from beginning to end, essentially. And it's hilarious because here's someone who is exploiting the system and he's doing it knowing that it's a jungle. So many rules, so many regulations, so many uh, cases setting precedents, so many laws that uh, if you know how to work the system... That's the thesis of the old man. They can't touch you. I saw a beautiful example of that in the San Francisco court. I was 
on jury duty. This attorney had violated the right-of-way of a cable car in San Francisco, and he hit the cable car. And basically, he was in the wrong. But he had read in the law where the cable car is not subject to the motor vehicle laws and therefore cannot be considered a second party in a right-of-way dispute in an intersection because the law says it's a conveyance. It's not a motor vehicle. And the judge asked the clerk to look it up, and he nodded. Yes, that's right. The judge says, case dismissed. He says, I hope you pay yourself a good fee. And this was the attorney representing himself. Well, talking about attorneys and their fees, I've forgotten which case it is, which is now a matter of a big case, in which the attorney's fees are $400 an hour. And that's a considerable jump up from $150 an hour, which was standard the last time I checked for the average attorney. What are they for corporate clients? $400 and $500 an hour. And bills of several million dollars are customary when a large corporation is involved, which is one of the reasons that they try to settle out of court as quickly as possible because the lawyers cost more than the claimants. We're just entering into a new phase in corporate law on the Disabilities Act. The Disabilities Act means that if a person weighs 800 pounds, you have to hire them notwithstanding. And if they have various and grave disabilities, they are supposed to be hired equal with any other applicant. Have you ever seen an 800-pound trapeze artist? No, but I'm sure that one would apply. Well, Joanna had quite an experience some years ago when she was still working for the telephone company when this girl, who was very, very much overweight, was hired because they couldn't really reject her since she had a disability. And she knew that was why she was hired. So she would stay away from work on the least excuse. She could be abusive of the staff and her co-workers. She knew she had an immunity. They were afraid that because of her disability, she could cost them a great deal. So she did as she pleased, worked as she pleased, and created a very serious problem there so that her co-workers were relieved when she chose to stay away. Things went better at work. What does the Disability Act, how does that fit in in a society which still talks about being a meritocracy, about the fact that people have a right to be promoted if they're female and have two college degrees and claim a competence which is just assumed rather than proven? But it's only merit for the chosen group. The government defines who is meritorious. Who is meritorious and who isn't. But you see, 
we're involved now in so many contradictions. Yes. What was that? Uh, Sam Irvin, the guy at the, who was on the uh, Watergate, Watergate committee. committee, he cited a poem, The Web, the web That We Weave. Oh, yes, that was Puck from Shakespeare. Okay. Oh, what a tangled web we yeah. weave when we seek to deceive or when something like that. First, we practice yes. to deceive. That's it. Well, well, Sam Irvin was a very interesting character. Uh, he was the only one on the Watergate committee that my friend in the oil company hadn't given money to. So I said, are you telling me that Sam was an honest senator? He said, well, not exactly, because Sam never spent any money in his home state. His suits, his hotel rooms, his meals, his automobiles, all his expenses were always covered. I recall, and I think this is fundamental to the problem we have, when uh, I was young, and this one boy was going into an area where the signs and everything made clear he had no right to be. And somebody else told him, you can't go there. Look at the sign. You're not supposed to be there. And he said, why shouldn't I? He's not God, speaking of a man who put up the sign. Well, that's why humanistic law doesn't work. You've removed the sanction of God. You have no authority then that long endures in its ability to say, thou shalt not do so and so. And that's why uh, Qaddafi was so perceptive. We destroyed the foundations of law in the Western world. And at the time, uh, he predicted, I believe it was in the mid-70s uh, to be more specific, that it would lead to a further breakdown throughout the Western world, and certainly that is happening so that there are some who do not feel that a society in which there is no respect for law because nobody regards law as truly binding, well, uh, it's going to disintegrate. You, uh, going back to Candor, that little publication, I read it this afternoon, uh -huh. and I don't usually because often it doesn't seem to be worth it, but this time it had a reprint of an essay printed, of course, a long time ago by G.K. Chesterton. And Chesterton was talking about the family in this essay. And he said, now, Chesterton died in 1936. I think he was born in 1874, somewhere around there. So we're talking about a man whose most of his writings were, I think, from 1900 to 1925 or 30. 1936. He said, first of all, the idea of liberty by the young people is mostly an illusion because their liberties consist of behaving in unison one way or another. And uh, when in his time they bobbed their hair and they went into 
dancing to Charleston and driving fast cars and so forth, and they thought of that as liberty. But they were all doing this together. What it really was was fashion. They were joining the fashion of the times, rock and roll today and so forth. He said, uh, and then he moved in the essay to the question of authority and what you might call right and wrong. He said, actually, the family is the place where you learn what is right and what is wrong. And you learn the nature of authority because each of these families is a little kingdom with a king and a queen and subjects in the form of small children. And he said, uh, when you get out into, as soon as you leave the family, as soon as you leave the house, you enter into the world of rules. And he said, you're covered with those rules the minute you get out in the street and the minute you go to work because you're working for an organization which is operated like a total monarchy or a dictatorship. And when you drive a car, when you get into a streetcar, no matter what you do, you're covered. The family then is the place of retreat from all the rules of society. And there you learn the rules of the family. You learn why you should obey the rules outside the family. And he said, those who want to destroy authority within the family do not realize what is going to emerge from the house in the future. And I think that was a very insightful progression. Very much so. Well, humanistic law is, by the courts, progressively replacing every uh, element of God's law in the Western world. It's a systematic campaign to supplant God's law with man's law. And what you have is a vast realm of rules and regulations which create an opportunity for evasion by legal means. The crime has to be specifically covered by a statute. And we're losing both on the ability to enforce the law and on the ability to make the law relevant to society. Relevance is important to law. And humanistic law lacks that key character, relevance. It is created in terms of ideas that the lawmakers have about the perfect society, a humanistic idea, a great society, or whatever they choose to call it, in which there should be endless regulations. I think it's interesting that the grand model for all socialist orders Plato's Republic has no laws. Only the philosopher kings who issue rules and regulations ad hoc. When uh, Plato was old, dealing with a practical situation, he wrote the laws. But until then, he preferred to have a group of men ad hoc 
establishing the rules. The uh, basic premise in this country was a government of laws, not of men. By the end of that of the last century, Charles Ferguson, one of the most influential writers in American history, although now forgotten, had written against that thesis, saying we needed a government of men, not of laws, because he broke radically with the Christian tradition, even though he had a ministerial background, to believe in the goodness of man and to believe that the philosopher kings could best rule without a constitution or a body of laws and only out of their goodness of heart and their wisdom. And we are living today in Ferguson's world. Uh, when William Randolph Hearst was a great promoter of Ferguson in his early years. So a government of men, not of laws, is what we really have, although we're not honest as Ferguson was, to state what the fact is. In dealing with the subject of humanistic law, we have to recognize another factor that is especially important here. With the rise of humanistic law, you have an element coming into power that has always been there, but never dominating the scene, the professional politician, the manipulator, the person who behind the scenes constantly works and uses law to his own advantage. And humanistic law has given us the kind of senators and congressmen, state legislators, mayors, etc., that we have in abundance today, a breed that... Uh, is totally unprincipled, operates using the law to manipulate the people. Gross has written more than one book about uh, this type of person and their totally pragmatic and unprincipled position. I'd like to bring in the judges. Yes. The judiciary operates in a shadow in the United States. It's protected by the press. Mm -hmm. Constantly we read about a court has ruled without giving us the name of the judge yes. and without giving us any of the details of the case in which the ruling was made, excepting the most cursory mention. And we have here a multiplicity of judges and courtrooms. We have... 50 different systems of administ judicial administration in the states, and we have, of course, the federal courts and the federal judges. And where constitutional rulings used to be rarely made, they're now being made by district judges, which is the lowest level, first, first level of the federal judiciary. There is nobody monitoring the courts. You mentioned earlier that, uh, Doug, that uh, the courts legislate. The courts only legislate when Congress wants them to. When Congress doesn't want to openly legislate a certain 
result, it presses the judiciary into making that decision, which in effect legislates, because the court, the Supreme Court of the United States, is the creature of the American Congress. It is not independent. The judiciary is as less independent today than it has ever been. It falls into the tide of every fashion, every fallacy, every myth, and it rules in every which way. And even on the federal appeal level, the ruling in one area of the Court of Appeals does not affect other areas of the Court of Appeals, so that the court rulings are chaotic until they get to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court only accepts a very small percentage of the cases that go that far, so that what the appeal courts have ruled is taken as law. Now, at no time, no previous period of American history have the rulings of the courts been taken as law. They are only rulings of the case. It's Talmudic in a way. The scholars who created the Talmud over the centuries have taken every possible aspect of the Old Testament and ruled about its application in actual life. And the rulings are wildly diverse because each case is distinct and unique. And if you go by case law, that means that you can bring the case up again because every case has a different situation and background and different participants so that you can rule any way you want. But what really gets me is the secrecy which has been created around the administration of the courts in the United States. They're having more influence today than ever, and yet they're not covered by the press in any really clear way. The people don't even know who is in the courts, don't know who the judges are, they don't know where they come from, you don't get any biographical information. You may have rulings that are dominated by racial or religious prejudice, which is never mentioned, which is never brought up. The caliber of the court, and incidentally, the judges do not discipline one another. A judge can be overturned and overturned and overturned for imbecilic decisions, but he remains in office because the courts do not discipline their fellow members. Any time that anyone proceeds against a judge, it's from the outside of the judiciary, never from within. And I think this, this is one of the great failures of the American press and the American Academy. We're up against uh, a group of men with, who are using, in effect, unlimited authority, a la a sultan, Middle Eastern rulings, bizarre rulings. I just ruled where a female judge gave a very moderate, very lenient sentence to a man convicted of sodomizing his stepchild, his stepdaughter, for a period of years on the basis of the fact that he had not penetrated her vaginally and therefore respected his religion. He was a Muslim. This was by a female judge. And it, it told, said no more about the case, just, you know, a little parting of the curtain. 
and it's a, a continuing disgrace in the American system. When we were talking about crime an hour ago, we didn't get to the judges just as well because he might have just dissolved in if, if, uh, in mutual rage. <laughs> well, it's a sweetheart deal. Uh, when the Congress doesn't, when politicians don't want to take the heat and they want to make some big change, for instance, I don't think that Congress could have passed a law legalizing abortion. So they threw it in the laps of the court because, yes. you know, these are unelected that's right, uh, and untouchable. And untouchable after they get court. In, uh, in office, unless they go totally crazy. Uh, you know, our government refuses to rule by results, and I think that's the most frustrating thing to people because it's so illogical. That's true. Uh, you know, God's law has lasting effect of results. Uh, if you commit a murder and you're executed for it, you're not ever going to do that crime again. That's right. If, uh, if a, a child uh, is molested uh, or used for uh, monetary purposes and pornography, uh, there's a biblical prescription uh, of death. So he's not ever going to do that again. And you have all of these people, particularly people in the poly class, uh, abduction and, and uh, killing who are uh, confused and they're the ones that are running up to Sacramento and saying you've got to do something about these repetitive offenders now the prescription for dealing with repetitive offenders was written a long time ago but they won't do it the people used to do it in the in the west before the courts and the judges and the sheriffs arrived, if they found somebody in the mining camp who was a thief, they hanged him. And somebody who was a troublemaker very soon found all he was looking for. And the book I read recently about crime in the West <coughs> that it arrived with the authorities who made deals with the crooks. There was one sheriff who refused to pass a judgment upon a criminal. They took the criminal out, they hanged him, and they left a noose on the judge's desk. And the judge left town the next day. He caught the message. Now, there doesn't seem to be any way that we can even reach our courts because we don't know who is a good judge and who is a bad one. And there is nobody to handle the matter. Can you imagine a case that takes years in the courts and more years to go through the baffle of appeals and we know that the Supreme Court of the United States has openly and deliberately and consciously released murderers on technicalities and yet we don't know which judges voted which way and we don't know very much about the background of the judges mm -hmm. not even the Supreme Court judges We've been discussing various aspects of humanistic law. But there's an important one, I think, that we should also take into consideration. Earlier in this country, 
the law was God's law. There was almost no statute law. And it was a case of the judge interpreting what God had to say. And the jury also, because cases were decided out of the Bible. Now, what has happened since is that in, we have, in effect, an unwritten Bible, psychiatry and psychology, so that the key testimony very often, in many a case, is that of psychiatrists and uh, psychologists. And they can be found on both sides of the case, and their uh, view of crime is a radically humanistic one. I mentioned earlier the very amusing uh, novel, Pioneer Go Home. There is a scene in the book in which a social worker feels the one way to get uh, the old man is to declare him to be unfit to uh, have custody of his two grandchildren. So the case goes to court and the uh, psychiatric social worker wants uh, to put it on a scientific basis. Let's test this old man. and uh, Your Honor, you'll see what he is. So uh, the judge asks for the test and says the uh, court will adjourn while it is administered by a court clerk. So then when they are in session again, the psychiatric social worker analyzes the answers to the questions. And the judge keeps saying, I, I don't see what's unreasonable about that. And the social worker calls attention to this or that aspect, that this person is dangerous, unfit to be around children, and so on and so forth. And uh, concludes with a statement that uh, such a person at the very least should be separated from children if not put away. And the judge says, well, that's an interesting conclusion. And rules in favor of the old man, the grandfather. And the uh, social worker is very indignant and the judge lets her have it. He said, it was I who took the test. I wanted to test your methodology. <laughs> it's a hilarious uh, indictment of the whole thing. The only trouble is there are no judges like that who would do that. But what the novelist there did show very tellingly was how radically subjective such testing is. Social science is entirely subjective. Mm -hmm. The uh, Weimar Republic used to uh, have elevated psychiatry to a position equal with the judge. And they call, didn't call it punishment, they called it treatment. And the treatment was based on the psychiatric evaluation. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't know whether they went into contending psychiatric evaluations or not, but... 
here, no criminal, I think, is sentenced without a psychiatric evaluation or at least a psychological evaluation. And it's interesting because they don't examine them physically. They don't have to have a physical examination. They can. They only have to have a, a you might say, a cultural examination. I wouldn't call it mental. It's more cultural than anything else. Sociological, if you prefer. And yet they may be suffering from a tumor or, or any, all kinds of things. And I think it's an indication of how far we've gone away from the physical realities that we don't examine them physically. Incidentally, back in the summer of 1962 at St. Mary's College in Moraga, California, where there was a summer teaching session, Hans Senholtz was one of them, and uh, someone else who was uh, very, very incompetent professor of political science. And one of the things I did was to require all the students to read Pioneer Go Home, which startled them that they had to read a novel. But they all got a great deal out of it, and about two or three years ago, one of the students at that session told me he uh, still thought back with pleasure to the reading of Pioneer Go Home because he found it such a humorous indictment of our regulatory state. But the reality, of course, is growing more and more grim all around us. The regulations can be absurd, but uh, they are maintained with a straight face, or when they are totally incompetent, they are quietly replaced without an apology. I recall during World War II, when I was on the Indian Reservation in northeast Nevada, a federal regulation uh, from Washington with regard to steers forbidding the ranchers to sell all their steers each year because some should be kept back for breeding purposes. Steers? Steers, yes. That's really steering in the wrong direction. <laughs> steers, in case anyone listening is so uh, much uh, a city product that they don't know, are castrated bulls. They are only for eating, not for breeding. But that type of uh, nonsense is very, very commonplace, only we don't have people calling attention to it nowadays and laughing about it. It's gone past humor. It really has. Bizarre rulings. Yes, and very dangerous. Yes. Now, governments that have outlived their competence in terms of justice are doomed to fall. In mm -hmm. the old days, it was the uh, predilection to rule, uh, to exempt aristocrats from proper punishments. 
Now there are a number of categories that are exempted from proper punishment. Social scientists themselves, who commit a great many moral crimes against the people, are are uh, allowed to do so for cultural reasons. I mean, uh, perjury, for instance, is now accepted. Mm -hmm. A perjurer is now used as a witness against a defendant or a witness in civil cases as well as in criminal cases. You can prove that they have in the past lied, and it will not affect the judge. Mm -hmm. If the story fits the judge's prejudices and the jury's, it'll be accepted. Well, judges are issuing warrants based on the the representations of convicted criminals. That's where some of these uh, home invasion by law enforcement, you know, thinking that there's drugs in the house, and it's just a, a misstatement or a intentional misstatement by a convicted criminal just to get him by himself some time or get himself off the hook. Well, the world of regulation is all around us. And even when it is something that you'd have to say, okay, it's good, it still violates common sense and freedom to carry it to the extent that people do. For example... I've never smoked in my life. It never appealed to me. I never liked the smell of it. But I never made a stink about it with anybody. And yet, uh, not only have we all this crazy anti-smoking uh, propaganda, but all they <coughs> talk about secondary smoke killing you and killing so many people. Uh, 300 people a year, I believe, was the last figure I Out heard. Out of 260 million? Yes. And uh, how do they know anyway? They don't. But uh, it's reached the level of insanity. And what uh, I find amusing is people I know who not too long ago, before they saw the light and went down to the altar and forswore smoking, now get very huffy if uh, they're seated anywhere near somebody who is smoking. Well, it's almost like a reformed whore. Yes. And sometimes I feel that what we ought to have is a statement with every uh, piece of paper coming out of Washington, D.C. It reads, Warning. The United States government can be hazardous to your health. Indeed. And I think that would be closer to the truth than much of what uh, we hear from them. Well, it's, it's the humanistic missionary zeal. Yes. They've always got to carry things too far. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the attributes or, or features of the Soviet Union in its heyday was the fact that individuals were constantly running into lecturers who would point their finger and tell them what they were doing wrong. Mm -hmm. And this is sort of endemic in the Amer United States, too. A great many people feel awfully noble denouncing cigarettes, mm -hmm. but I don't hear the same lectures against cocaine and heroin or the same zeal. Uh, have you read something you said reminded me of it? P.J. O'Rourke, 
Republican Party reptile? I haven't read that, no. Oh, he has a hilarious section on a trip he took to Russia with a lot of true blue leftists. It was a trip advertised in Nation as an educational trip to the great experiment, so he took the trip. And uh, all these people, of course, who believed that this was the great worker's paradise, nonetheless went along on the trip with a lot of uh, toilet paper. <laughs> so they knew. So they knew the truth. And uh, they were constantly lecturing not only O'Rourke, but even the Russians. <laughs> so the Russians on the trip were ready to sneak off with O'Rourke to do nothing but drink and forget the leftists. If it wasn't for cigarettes and whiskey, I think the Soviet Union wouldn't have lasted 70 years. <laughs> Vodka, not whiskey. Vodka, yes. Yes. Well, O'Rourke's book is very, very funny. He is funny. Our time is just about over. Is there something you'd like to say by way of conclusion? I'll say this. Humanistic law is committing suicide. It has no future. So that's the good news about humanistic law. Well, I, uh, Otto, your uh, landmark proposal years ago uh, proposing term limits on lawmakers, I'd like to advance that to the next step and propose that uh, we make it mandatory on lawmakers that they have to review all laws on the books for continued validity every year. So we give them, keep them busy, give them something to do so that they don't write new ones. Well, I'll go along with that. I think that 12 years on the bench and 12 years in Congress, 12 years in government service is long enough. We should pension them. It would be cheap to pension them for life and forbid them to serve again in any capacity except military. If they wanted to fight for the country, I'm all for it. If they haven't made themselves rich through graft and corruption in 12 years, then they're not smart enough enough to serve any longer. Well, thank you all for listening, and God bless you. Authorized by the Calcedon Foundation. Archived by the Mount Olive Tape Library. Digitized by Christrules.com.